It was the smallest and ugliest dog Moist had ever seen. He resembled those goldfish with the huge bulging eyes that looked as though they were about to explode. His nose, on the other hand, looked stoved in. He wheezed, and his legs were so bandy that he must sometimes trip over his own feet. That's Mr. Fusspot, said the old woman. He doesn't normally take to people, Mr. Lipwick. I'm impressed. Hello, Mr. Fusspot, said Moist. The dog gave a little yappy bark and then covered Moist's face in all that was best in dog slobber. Ah, he likes you, Mr. Lipwig, said Miss Lavish approvingly. Can you guess the breed? Moist had grown up with dogs and was pretty good at breeds, but with Mr. Fusspot there was no place to start. He plumped for honesty. All of them, he suggested. Mrs. Lavish laughed, and the laugh sounded at least sixty years younger than she was. <laughs> Quite right. His mother was a spoonhound, very popular in royal palaces in the olden days. But she got out one night, and there was an awful lot of barking, and I fear Mr. Fusspot is the son of many fathers, poor thing. Mr. Fusspot turned two soulful eyes on Moist, and his expression began to become a little strained. Bent. Mr. Fusspot is looking rather uncomfortable, said Miss Lavish. Please take him for his little walk in the garden, will you? I really don't think the young clerks give him enough time. A brief spell of thundery weather passed across the chief cashier's face, but he obediently took a red leash from a hook. The little dog began to growl. Bent also took down a pair of heavy leather gloves and deftly put them on. As the growling increased, he picked up the dog very carefully and held it under one arm. Without uttering a word, he left the room. "'Ah, so you are the famous postmaster-general,' said Mrs. Lavish. "'The man in the golden suit, no less. "'But not this morning, I note. "'Come here, dear boy. "'Let me look at you in the light.' Moist advanced, and the old lady got awkwardly to her feet by means of a pair of ivory-handled walking-sticks. Then she dropped one and grabbed Moist's chin. She stared intently at him, turning his head this way and that. "'Hm,' she said, stepping back. "'It's as I thought.' The remaining walking-stick caught Moist a whack across the back of the legs, scything him over like a straw. As he lay stunned on the thick carpet, Mrs. Lavish went on triumphantly, "'You're a thief, a trickster, a Charlie Artful, and an all-round bunco artist. Admit it!' "'I'm not!' Moist protested weakly. "'Liar, too!' said Mrs. Lavish cheerfully. "'And probably an impostor. "'Oh, don't waste that innocent look on me. I said you are a rogue, sir. I wouldn't trust you with a bucket of water if my knickers were on fire.' Then she prodded Moist in the chest, hard. "'Well, are you going to lie there all day?' she snapped. "'Get up, man! I didn't say I didn't like you!' Head spinning, Moist got cautiously to his feet. "'Give me your hand, Mr. Liffig,' said Mrs. Lavish. "'Postmaster General, you are a work of art. Put it here.' "'What? Oh!' Moist grasped the old woman's hand. It was like shaking hands with cold parchment. Mrs. Lavish laughed. "'Ah, yes!' just like the forthright and reassuring grasp of my late husband. No honest man has a handshake as honest as that. How in the world has it taken you so long to find the financial sector? Moist looked around. They were alone, his calves were sore, and there was no fooling some people. What we have here, he told himself, is a Mark I feisty old lady. Turkey neck, embarrassing sense of humour, a gleeful pleasure in mild cruelty, direct way of speaking that flirts with rudeness, and, more important, also flirts with flirting. Likes to think she's no lady. Game for anything that doesn't carry the risk of falling over, and with a look in her eye that says, I can do what I like because I am old, and I have a soft spot for rascals. Old ladies like that were hard to fool, but there was no need to. 
he relaxed. Sometimes it was a sheer relief to drop the mask. I'm not an impostor, at least, he said. Moist von Lipwig is my given name. Yes, I can't imagine that you would have had any choice in the matter, said Mrs. Lavish, heading back to her seat. However, you seem to be fooling all of the people all of the time. Sit down, Mr. Lipwig. I shall not bite. This last was said with a look that transmitted, but give me half a bottle of gin and five minutes to find my teeth, and we shall see. She indicated a chair next to her. What? I thought I was being dismissed, said Moist, playing along. Really? Why? For being all those things you said? I didn't say I thought you were a bad person, said Mrs. Lavish. And Mr. Fusspot likes you, and he is a remarkably good judge of people. Besides, you've done wonders with our post office, just as Havelock says. Mrs. Lavish reached down beside her and pulled a large bottle of gin onto the desktop. A drink, Mr. Lipwig? Er, uh, not at this time. Mrs. Lavish sniffed. I don't have much time, sir, but fortunately I have a lot of gin. Moist watched her pour a marginally sublethal measure into a tumbler. Do you have a young lady? she asked, raising the glass. Yes. Does she know what you're like? Yes, I keep telling her. Doesn't believe you, eh? Ah, such is the way of a woman in love, sighed Mrs. Lavish. I don't think it worries her, actually. She's not your average girl. Ah, and she sees your inner self. You're perhaps the carefully constructed inner self you keep around for people to find. People like you, she paused and went on, people like us always keep at least one inner self for inquisitive visitors, don't we? Moist didn't rise to this. Talking to Mrs. Lavish was like standing in front of a magic mirror that stripped you to your marrow. He just said, Most of the people she knows are golems. Oh, great big clay men who are utterly trustworthy and don't have anything to declare in the trouser department. What does she see in you, Mr. Lipvig? She prodded him with a finger like a cheese straw. Moist's mouth dropped open. A contrast, I trust, said Mrs. Lavish, patting him on the arm. And now Havelock has sent you here to tell me how to run my bank. You may call me Topsy. Well, I tell her how to run her bank. It hadn't been put like that. Topsy leaned forward. I never minded about honey, you know, she said, slightly lowering her voice. Quite a nice girl, but thick as a yard of lard. She wasn't the first either, not by a long way. I was Joshua's mistress once myself. Really? He knew he was going to hear it all, whether he wanted to or not. Oh, yes, said Mrs. Lavish. People understood more then. It was all quite acceptable. I used to take tea with his wife once a month to sort out his schedule, and she always said that she was glad to have him out from under her feet. Of course, a mistress was expected to be a woman of some accomplishment in those days, she sighed. Now, of course, the ability to spin upside down around a pole seems to be sufficient. Standards are falling everywhere, said Moist. It was a pretty good bet. They always were. Banking is really rather similar, said Topsy, as though thinking aloud. Pardon? I mean, the mere physical end in view is going to be the same, but style should count for something, don't you think? There should be flair. There should be inventiveness. There should be an experience rather than a mere function. Havelock says you understand these things. She gave Moist a questioning look. After all, you have made the post office an almost heroic enterprise, yes. People set their watches by the arrival of the Genua Express. They used to set their calendars. The clax still makes a loss, said Moist. A marvellously small one. 
while enriching the commonality of mankind in all sorts of ways, and I've no doubt that Havelock's taxmen take their share of that. You have the gift of enthusing people, Mr. Litvig. Well, I... Well, I suppose I do, he managed. I know if you want to sell the sausage, you have to know how to sell the sizzle. Well and good, well and good, said Topsy, but I hope you know that however gifted you are as a sizzle salesman, sooner or later you must be able to produce the sausage, hmm? She gave him a wink which would have got a younger woman jailed. Incidentally, she went on, I recall hearing that the gods led you to the treasure trove that helped you to rebuild the post office. What really happened? You can tell Topsy. He probably could, he decided, and noticed that, although her hair was indeed thinning and almost white, it still held a pale trace of orange that hinted of more vivid reds in the past. It was my stashed loot, from years of swindling, he said. Mrs. Lavish clapped her hands. Wonderful! A sausage indeed! That is so satisfying! Havelock has always had an instinct for people. He has plans for the city, you know. The undertaking, said Moist. Yes, I know. Underground streets and new docks and everything, said Topsy. And for that a government needs money, and money needs banks. Unfortunately, people have rather lost their faith in banks. Why? Because we lost their money, usually. Mostly not on purpose. We have been badly buffeted in recent years. The crash of 88, the crash of 93, the crash of 98, although that one was more of a ding. My late husband was a man who loaned unwisely, so we must carry bad debts and other results of questionable decisions. Now we're where little old ladies keep their money because they always have done, and the nice young clerks are still polite, and there's still a brass bowl by the door for their little dogs to drink out of. Could you do anything about this? The supply of old ladies is running out, as I'm well aware. Well, uh, I may have a few ideas, said Moist, but it's all still a bit of a shock. I don't really understand how banks work. You've never put money in a bank? Not in, no. How do you think they work? Well, you take rich people's money and lend it to suitable people at interest and give as little as possible of the interest back. Yes, and what is a suitable person? Someone who can prove they don't need the money? Oh, you cynic! But you have got the general idea. No poor people, then. Not in banks, Mr. Lipvig. No one with an income under $150 a year. That is why socks and mattresses were invented. My late husband always said that the only way to make money out of poor people is by keeping them poor. He was not, in his business life, a very nice man. Do you have any more questions? How did you become the bank's chairman? said Moist. Chairman and manager, said Topsy proudly. Joshua liked to be in control. Oh, yes, didn't he just, she added, as if to herself. And I am now both of them, because of a little bit of ancient magic called being left fifty per cent of the shares. I thought that bit of magic was fifty-one per cent of the shares, said Moist. Couldn't the other shareholders force— An inner door opened at the far side of the room, and a tall woman in white entered, carrying a tray with its contents concealed by a cloth. "'It really is time for your medicine, Mrs. Lavish,' she said. "'It does me no good at all, sister,' snapped the old woman. Now you know the doctor said no more alcohol, said the nurse. She looked accusingly at Moist. She's to have no more alcohol, she repeated, on the apparent assumption that he had a few bottles on his person. Well, I say no more, doctor, said Mrs. Lavish, winking conspiratorially at Moist. 
My so-called stepchildren are paying for this. Can you believe it? They're out to poison me, and they tell everyone I've gone mad. There was a knock at the door, less a request to enter than a declaration of intent. Mrs. Lavish moved with impressive speed, and the bows were already swivelling when the door swung open. Mr. Bent came in, with Mr. Fusspot under his arm, still growling. I said five times, Mr. Bent, Mrs. Lavish yelled. I might have shot Mr. Fusspot. Can't you count? I do beg your pardon, said Mr. Bent, placing Mr. Fusspot carefully in the in-tray. And I can count. Who's a little Fusspot, then? said Mrs. Lavish, as the little dog almost exploded with mad excitement at seeing someone he'd last seen at least ten minutes ago. Has you been a good boy? Has he been a good boy, Mr. Bent? Yes, madam, excessively. The venom of a snake ice cream could not have been chillier. May I return to my duties now? Mr. Bent thinks I don't know how to run a bank, doesn't he, Mr. Fusspot? Mrs. Lavish crooed to the dog. He's a silly Mr. Bent, isn't he? Yes, Mr. Bent, you may go. Moist recalled an old bang-bang-duck proverb. When old ladies talk maliciously to their dog, that dog is lunch. It seemed amazingly appropriate at a time like this, and a time like this was not a good time to be around. Well, it's been nice meeting you, Mrs. Lavish, he said, standing up. I shall think things over. Has he been to see Hubert? said Mrs. Lavish, apparently to the dog. He must see Hubert before he goes. I think he is a little confused about finance. Take him to see Hubert, Mr. Bent. Hubert is so good at explaining. Mm, as you wish, madam, said Bent, glaring at Mr. Fusspot. I'm certain that having heard Hubert explain the flow of money, he will no longer be a little confused. Please follow me, Mr. Lippig. Bent was silent as they walked downstairs. He lifted his oversized feet with care, like a man walking across a floor strewn with pins. Mrs. Lavish is a jolly old stick, isn't she? Moist ventured. I believe she is what is known as a character, sir, said Bent somberly. A bit tiresome at times? I will not comment, sir. Mrs. Lavish owns fifty-one per cent of the shares in my bank. His bank, Moist noted. That's strange, he said. She just told me she owned only fifty per cent. And the dog, said Bent. The dog owns one share, a legacy from the late Sir Joshua, and Mrs. Lavish owns the dog. The late Mr. Lavish had what I understand is called a puckish sense of humour, Mr. Lipvig. And the dog owns a piece of the bank, thought Moist. What a jolly people the Lavishes are indeed. I can see that you might not find it very funny, Mr. Bent, he said. I'm pleased to say I find nothing funny, sir, Bent replied as they reached the bottom of the stairs. I have no sense of humour whatsoever. None at all. It has been proven by phrenology. I have Nichtlachten-Kindworts syndrome, which for some curious reason is considered a lamentable affliction. I, on the other hand, consider it a gift. I am happy to say that I regard the sight of a fat man slipping on a banana skin as nothing more than an unfortunate accident that highlights the need for care in the disposal of household waste. Have you tried? Moist began, but Bent held up a hand. Please, I repeat, I do not regard it as a burden, and may I say it annoys me when people assume it is such. Do not feel impelled to try to make me laugh, sir. If I had no legs, would you try to make me run? I am quite happy, thank you. He paused by another pair of doors, calmed down a little, and gripped the handles. 
And now, perhaps, I should take this opportunity to show you where the, may I say, serious work is done, Mr. Lipvig. This used to be called the Counting House, but I prefer to think of it as, he pulled at the doors which swung open majestically, my world. It was impressive, and the first impression it gave Moist was, this is hell on the day they couldn't find the matches. He stared at the rows of bent backs, scribbling frantically. No one looked up. I will not have abacuses and calculating bones or other calculating devices under this roof, Mr. Lipvig, said Bent, leading the way down the central aisle. The human brain is capable of infallibility in the world of numbers. Since we invented them, how should it be otherwise? We are rigorous here, rigorous. In one swift movement, Bent pulled a sheet of paper from the outtray of the nearest desk, scanned it briefly, and dropped it back again with a little grunt that signified either his approval that the clerk had got things right, or his own disappointment that he had not found anything wrong. The sheet had been crammed with calculations, and surely no mortal could have followed them at a glance, but Moist would not have bet a penny that Bent hadn't accounted for every line. "'Here in this room we are at the heart of the bank,' said the chief cashier proudly. The heart, said Moist blankly. Here we calculate interest and charges and mortgages and costs and everything, in fact, and we do not make mistakes. What, never? Well, hardly ever. Though some individuals occasionally make an error, Bent conceded with distaste. Fortunately, I check every calculation. No errors get past me, you may depend upon it. An error, sir, is worse than a sin, the, the reason being that a sin is often a matter of opinion, or viewpoint, or even of timing, but an error is a, a fact, and it cries out for correction. I see you are not sneering, Mr. Lipvig. I'm not? I mean, no, I'm not, said Moist. Damn! He'd forgotten the ancient wisdom. Take care, when you are closely observing, that you are not closely observed. "'But you are appalled, nevertheless,' said Bent. "'You use words, and I'm told you do it well, "'but words are soft and can be pummeled into different meanings by a skilled tongue. "'Numbers are hard. "'Oh, you can cheat with them, but you cannot change their nature. Three is three. "'You cannot persuade it to be four, even if you give it a great big kiss.' "'There was a very faint snigger from somewhere in the hall, "'but Mr. Bent apparently did not notice.' and they are not very forgiving. We work very hard here at things that must be done, he said, and this is where I sit, at the very centre. They'd reached the big stepped dais in the centre of the room. As they did so, a skinny woman in a white blouse and a long black skirt edged respectfully past them and carefully placed a wad of paper in a tray that was already piled high. She glanced at Mr. Bent, who said, Thank you, Miss Drapes, he was too busy pointing out the marvels of the dais, on which a semicircular desk of complex design had been mounted, to notice the expression that passed across her pale little face. But Moist did, and read a thousand words, probably written in her diary and never shown to anyone. "'Do you see?' said the chief cashier impatiently. Hm? said Moist, watching the woman scurry away. "'See here, you see,' said Bent, sitting down and pointing with what almost seemed like enthusiasm. By means of these treadles, I can move my desk to face anywhere in the room. It is the panopticon of my little world. Nothing is beyond my eye. 
He pedalled furiously, and the whole dais began to rumble around on its turntable. And it can turn at two speeds, too, as you can see, because of this ingenious— I can see that almost nothing is beyond your eye, said Moist, watching Miss Drapes sit down. But I'm sorry to interrupt your work. Bent glanced at the in-tray and gave a little shrug. That pile? That will not take me long, he said, setting the handbrake and standing up. Besides, I think it important that you see what we are really about at this point, because I must now take you to meet Hubert. He gave a little cough. Hubert is not what you're about, Moist suggested, and then headed back to the main hall. I'm sure he means well, said Bent, leaving the words hanging in the air like a noose. Out in the hall a dignified hush prevailed. A few people were at the counters, an old lady watched her little dog drink from the brass bowl inside the door, and any words that were uttered were spoken in a suitably hushed voice. Moist was all for money. It was one of his favourite things, but it didn't have to be something you mentioned very quietly in case it woke up. If money talked in here, it whispered. The chief cashier opened a small and not very grand door behind the stairs and half hidden by some potted plants. Please be careful, the floor is always wet here, he said, and led the way down some wide steps into the grandest cellar Moist had ever seen. Fine stone vaulting supported beautifully tiled ceilings, stretching away into the gloom. There were candles everywhere, and in the middle distance something was sparkling and filling the colonnaded space with a blue-white glow. This was the Undercroft of the temple, said Bent, leading the way. Are you telling me this place doesn't just look like a temple? It was built as a temple, yes, but never used as one. Really? said Moist. Which god? None, as it turned out. One of the kings of Ankh commanded it to be built about nine hundred years ago, said Bent. I suppose it was a case of speculative building. That is to say, he had no god in mind. He hoped one would turn up. Exactly, sir. Like blue tits, said Moist, peering around. This place was a kind of celestial bird box. Bent sighed. You express yourself colourfully, Mr. Lipvig, but I suppose there is some truth there. It didn't work anyway. Then it got used as storage in case of siege, became an indoor market and so on, and then Jocatello La Vice got the place when the city defaulted on a loan. It is all in the official history. Isn't the fornication wonderful? After quite a lengthy pause, Moist ventured, Is it? Don't you think so? There's more here than anywhere else in the city, I'm told. Really? said Moist, looking around nervously. Um, do you have to come down here at some special time? Well, during banking hours, usually, but we let groups in by appointment. You know, said Moist. I think this conversation has somehow got away from me. Bent waved vaguely at the ceiling. I refer to the wonderful vaulting, he said. The word derives from fornix, meaning arch. Ah, yes, right, said Moist. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if not many people knew that. And then Moist saw the glooper glowing among the arches. Chapter 3. The Glooper. A proper Hubert. One very big mattress. Some observations on tourism. Gladys makes a sandwich. The Blind Letter Office. 
Mrs. Lavish's posterity. An ominous note. Flight planning. An even more ominous note, and certainly more ominous than the first note. Mr. Lipvig boards the wrong coach. Moist had seen glass being bent and blown, and marvelled at the skill of the people who did it, marvelled as only a man can marvel whose skill is only in bending words. Some of those geniuses had probably worked on this, but so had their counterparts from the hypothetical other side, glass-blowers who had sold their souls to some molten god for the skill to blow glass into spirals and intersecting bottles, and shapes that seemed to be quite close but some distance away at the same time. Water gurgled, sloshed, and, yes, glooped along glass tubing. There was a smell of salt. Bent nudged moist, pointed to an improbable wooden hat-stand, and wordlessly handed him a long yellow oilskin coat and a matching rain hat. He had already donned a similar outfit, and had magically procured an umbrella from somewhere. "'It's the balance of payments,' he said, as Moist struggled into the coat. "'He never gets it right.' There was a crash from somewhere, and water droplets rained down on them. "'See?' Bent added. "'What's it doing?' said Moist. Bent rolled his eyes. "'Hell knows. Heaven suspects,' he said. He raised his voice. "'Hubert, we have a visitor.' A distant splashing grew louder, and a figure appeared round the edge of the glassware. Rightly or wrongly, Hubert is one of those names you put a shape to. There may well be tall, slim Huberts, Moist would be the first to agree, but this Hubert was shaped like a proper Hubert, which is to say, stubby and plump. He had red hair, unusual in Moist's experience in the standard model Hubert. It grew thickly, straight up from his head, like the bristles of a brush. About five inches up, someone had apparently cut it short with the aid of shears and a spirit level. You could have stood a cup and saucer on it. "'A visitor,' said Hubert nervously. "'Wonderful! We don't get many down here.' "'Really?' said Moist. Hubert wore a long white coat with a breast pocket full of pencils. "'Hubert, this is Mr. Lipvig,' said Bent. "'He is here to learn about us.' "'I am Moist,' said Moist stepping forward with his best smile and an extended hand. "'Oh, I'm sorry. We should have hung the raincoats near the door,' said Hubert. He looked at Moist's hand as if it was some interesting device, and then shook it carefully. "'You're not seeing us at our best, Mr. Lipwick,' he said. "'Really?' said Moist, still smiling. "'How does the hair stay up like that?' he wondered. "'Does he use glue, or what?' "'Mr. Lipvig is the postmaster-general, Hubert,' said Bent. "'Is he? Oh, I don't get out of the cellar very much these days,' said Hubert. "'Really?' said Moist, his smile now a bit glassy. "'No, we're so close to perfection, you see,' said Hubert. "'I really think we're nearly there. Mr. Hubert believes that this device is a sort of crystal ball for showing the future,' said Bent, and rolled his eyes. "'Possible futures. Would Mr. Lipstick like to see it in operation?' said Hubert, vibrating with enthusiasm and eagerness. Only a man with a heart of stone would have said no, so Moist made a wonderful attempt at indicating that all his dreams were coming true. I'd love to, he said, but what does it actually do? Too late, he saw the signs. Hubert grasped the lapels of his jacket, as if addressing a meeting, and swelled with the urge to communicate, or at least talk at length in the belief that it was the same thing. The blooper! 
as it is affectionately known, is what I call a, quote, analogy machine, end quote. It solves problems not by considering them as a numerical exercise, but by actually duplicating them in a form we can manipulate. In this case, the flow of money and its effects within our society becomes water flowing through a glass matrix, the glooper. The geometrical shape of certain vessels, the operation of valves, and, although I say so myself, ingenious tipping buckets and floor-rate propellers, enable the glooper to simulate quite complex transactions. We can change the starting conditions, too, to learn the rules inherent in the system. For example, we can find out what happens if you halve the labour force in the city by the adjustment of a few valves rather than by going out into the streets and killing people. A big improvement, bravo, said Moist desperately, and started to clap. No one joined in. He shoved his hands in his pockets. Eh, perhaps you would like a less um, dramatic demonstration, Hubert volunteered. Moist nodded. Yes, he said. Show me, show me what happens when people get fed up with banks, he said. Ah, yes, a familiar one. Ego, set up program five, Hubert shouted to some figure in the forest of glassware. There was the sound of squeaky screws being turned and the glug of reservoirs being topped up. Ego, said Moist. You have an ego? Oh, yes, said Hubert. That's how I get this wonderful light. They know the secret of storing lightning in jars. But don't let that worry you, Mr. Lipstick. Just because I'm employing an ego and working in a cellar doesn't mean I'm some sort of madman. Ha ha ha! Ha ha ha! agreed Moist. Ha 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 ha! said Hubert. Ha 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 ha! Bent slapped him on the back. Hubert coughed. Uh, sorry about that. It's the uh, air down here, he mumbled. It certainly looks very. Complex, this uh, thing of yours, said Moist, striking out for normality. Eh, uh, yes, said Hubert, a little bit thrown. And we are refining it all the time. For example, floats coupled to ingenious spring-loaded sluice gates elsewhere on the glooper can allow changes in the level in one flask to automatically adjust flows in several other places in the system. What's that for, said Moist, pointing at random to a round bottle suspended in the tubing. Phase of the moon valve, said Hubert promptly. The moon affects how money moves around? We don't know. It might. The weather certainly does. Really? Certainly, Hubert beamed. And we're adding fresh influences all the time. Indeed, I will not be satisfied until my wonderful machine can completely mimic every last detail of our great city's economic cycle. A bell rang, and he went on, Thank you, Igor. Let it go. Something clanked, and coloured waters began to foam and slosh along the bigger pipes. Hubert raised not only his voice, but also a long pointer. Now, if we reduce public confidence in the banking system, watch that tube there, you will see here a flow of cash out of the banks and into Flask 28, currently designated the old sock under the mattress. Even quite rich people don't want their money outside their control. See, the mattress is getting fuller, or perhaps I should say thicker. That's a lot of mattresses, Moist agreed. I prefer to think of it as one mattress a third of a mile high. Really? said Moist. Slosh. Valves opened somewhere, and water rushed along a new path. 
Now see how bank lending is emptying as the money drains into the sock. Gurgle. Watch Reservoir 11 over there. That means business expansion is slowing. There it goes. There it goes. Drip. Now watch Bucket 34. It's dipping. It's dipping. There, the scale on the left of Flask 17 shows collapsing businesses, by the way. See Flask 9 beginning to fill? That's foreclosures. Job losses is Flask 7. And there goes the valve on Flask 28 as the socks are pulled out. Flush. But what is there to buy? Over here we see that Flask 11 has also drained. Trip. Except for the occasional gurgle, the aquatic activity subsided. And we end up in a position where we can't move because we're standing on our own hands, as it were, said Hubert. Jobs vanishing, people without savings suffering, wages low, farms going back to wilderness, rampaging trolls coming down from the mountains. They're here already, said Moist. Some of them are even in the watch. Are you sure? said Hubert. Yes, they've got helmets and everything. I've seen them. Then I expect they'll be wanting to rampage back to the mountains, said Hubert. I think I would if I were them. You believe all that could really happen, said Moist. A bunch of tubes and buckets can tell you that. They are correlated to events very carefully, Mr. Lipswick, said Hubert, looking hurt. Correlation is everything. Did you know it is an established fact that hemlines tend to rise in times of national crisis? You mean, Moist began, not at all certain how the sentence was going to end. Women's dresses get shorter, said Hubert. And that causes a national crisis, really? How high do they go? Mr. Bent coughed a leaden cough. I think perhaps we should go, Mr. Lipvig, he said. If you have seen all you want, no doubt you are in a hurry to leave. There was a slight inflection on leave. What? Oh, yes, said Moist. I probably should be getting along. Well, thank you, Hubert. It has been an education and no mistake. I just can't get rid of the leaks, said the little man, looking crestfallen. I'll swear that every joint is watertight, but we never end up with the same amount of water that we started with. Of course not, Hubert, said Moist, patting him on the shoulder. And that's because you're close to achieving perfection. I am, said Hubert, wide-eyed. Certainly. Everyone knows that at the end of the week you never have quite as much money as you think you should. It's a well-known fact. The sunrise of delight dawned on Hubert's face. Topsy was right, Moist told himself. I am good with people. Now demonstrated by the glooper, Hubert breathed. I shall write a paper on it. Or you could write it on paper, said Moist, shaking him warmly by the hand. OK, Mr. Bent, let us tear ourselves away. When they were walking up the main stairs, Moist said, What relation is Hubert to the current chairman? Nephew, said Bent. How did you? I'm always interested in people, said Moist, smiling to himself. And there's the red hair, of course. Why does Mrs. Lavish have two crossbows on her desk? Family heirlooms, sir, lied Bent. It was a deliberate, flagrant lie, and he must have meant it to be seen as such. Family heirlooms? And she sleeps in her office. All right, she's an invalid, but people usually do that at home. She doesn't intend to step out of the room. She's on guard, and she's very particular about who comes in. Do you have any interests, Mr. Bent? I do my job with care and attention, sir. Yes, but 
What do you do in the evenings? I double-check the day's totals in my office, sir. I find counting very satisfying. You're very good at it, yes? More than you can imagine, sir. So if I save $93.47 a year for seven years at two and a quarter percent compound, how $835.13 calculated once annually, sir, said Bent calmly. Yes, and twice you've known the exact time, thought Moist, and you didn't look at a watch. You are good with numbers. Inhumanly good, perhaps. No holidays, he said aloud. I did a walking tour of the major banking houses of Uberwald last summer, sir. It was most instructive. That must have taken weeks. I'm glad you felt able to tear yourself away. No, oh, it was easy, sir. Miss Drapes, who is the senior clerk, sent a coded clacks of the day's business to each of my lodging houses at the close of business every day. I was able to review it over my strudel and respond instantly with advice and instructions. Is Miss Drapes a useful member of the staff? Indeed. She performs her duties with care and alacrity. He paused. They were at the top of the stairs. Bent turned and looked directly at Moist. I have worked here all my life, Mr. Litvig. Be careful of the Lavish family. Mrs. Lavish is the best of them, a wonderful woman. The others are used to getting their own way. Old family, old money, that kind of family. Moist felt a distant call, like the song of the Skylark. It came back to taunt him every time, for example, he saw an out-of-towner in the street, with a map and a perplexed expression, crying out to be relieved of his money in some helpful and hard-to-follow way. "'Dangerously so?' he said. Bent looked a little affronted at this directness. "'They are not at home to disappointment, sir. They have tried to declare Mrs. Lavish insane, sir.' Really said Moist, compared to who? The wind blew through the town of Big Cabbage, which liked to call itself the Green Heart of the Plains. It was called Big Cabbage because it was home to the biggest cabbage in the world, and the town's inhabitants were not very creative when it came to names. People travelled miles to see this wonder. They'd go inside its concrete interior and peer out through the windows, buy cabbage leaf bookmarks, cabbage ink, cabbage shirts, Captain Cabbage dolls, musical boxes carefully crafted from kohlrabi and cauliflower, which played the Cabbage Eater's song, cabbage jam, kale ale, and green cigars made from a newly developed species of cabbage and rolled on the thighs of local maidens, presumably because they liked it. Then there was the excitement of Brassica World, where very small children could burst into terrified screams at the huge head of Captain Cabbage himself, along with his friends Cauliflower the Clown and Billy Broccoli. For older visitors, there was, of course, the Cabbage Research Institute, over which a green pall always hung, and downwind of which plants tended to be rather strange and sometimes turned to watch you as you passed. And then, what better way to record the day of a lifetime than pose at the behest of the black-clad man with the iconograph, who took a picture of the happy family and promised a framed, coloured result sent right to their home for a mere three dollars, S and H included. One dollar deposit to cover expenses, if you would be so good, sir, and may I say what wonderful children you have there, madam, they are a credit to you and no mistake. Oh, and did I say that if you are not delighted with a framed picture, then send no further money and we shall say no more about it. The kale ale was generally pretty good, 
and there's no such thing as too much flattery where mothers are concerned. And, all right, the man had rather strange teeth, which seemed determined to make a break from his mouth, but none of us is perfect, and what was there to lose? What there was to lose was a dollar, and they add up. Whoever said you can't fool an honest man wasn't one. Around about the seventh family a watchman started taking a distant interest, so the man in dusty black made a show of taking the last name and address and strolled into an alley. He tossed the broken iconograph back on the pile of junk where he had found it. It was a cheap one, and the imps had long since evaporated, and was about to set off across the fields when he saw the newspaper being bowled along by the wind. To a man travelling on his wits, a newspaper was a useful treasure. Stuck down your shirt, it kept the wind off your chest. You could use it to light fires. For the fastidious, it saved a daily resort to dockweed, burdock, or other broad-leaved plants. And as a last resort, you could read it. This evening the breeze was getting up. He gave the front page of the paper a cursory glance and tucked it under his vest. His teeth tried to tell him something, but he never listened to them. A man could go mad listening to his teeth. When he got back to the post office, Moist looked up the lavish family in Whom's Whom. They were, indeed, what was known as old money, which meant that it had been made so long ago that the black deeds which had originally filled the coffers were now historically irrelevant. Funny that. A brigand for a father was something you kept quiet about, but a slave-taking pirate for a great-great-great-grandfather was something to boast of over the port. Time turned the evil bastards into rogues, and rogue was a word with a twinkle in its eye and nothing to be ashamed of. They'd been rich for centuries. The key players in the current crop of lavishes, apart from Topsy, were her brother-in-law Marco Lavish and his wife Capricia Lavish, daughter of a famous trust fund. They lived in Genua, as far away from the other lavishes as possible, which was a very lavish thing to do. Then there were Topsy's stepchildren, the twins Cosmo and Pucci, who had, the story ran, been born with their little hands around each other's throats, like true lavishes. There were also plenty more cousins, aunts, and genetic hangers-on, all watching one another like cats. From what he'd heard, the family business was traditionally banking, but the recent generations, buoyed by a complex network of long-term investments and ancient trust funds, had diversified into disinheriting and suing one another, apparently with great enthusiasm and a commendable lack of mercy. He recalled pictures of them in the Times society pages getting in or out of sleek black coaches and not smiling very much in case the money escaped. There was no mention of Topsy's side of the family. They were Turvies, apparently not grand enough to be Whom's, Topsy Turvy. There was a music hall sound to it, and Moist could believe that. Moist's inbox had been topped up in his absence. It was all unimportant stuff and really didn't need anything from him but it was this new-fangled carbon paper that was the trouble. He got copies of everything, and they took up time. It wasn't that he wasn't good at delegating. He was extremely good at delegating, but the talent requires people on the other end of the chain to be good at being delegated onto. They weren't. Something about the post office discouraged original thinking. The letters went in the slots, okay. There was no room for people who wanted to experiment with sticking them in their ear, up the chimney, or down the privy. It would do them good to... He spotted the flimsy pink clacks among the other stuff and tugged it out quickly. It was from Spike. He read, Success. Returning day after tomorrow. All will be revealed. S. Moist put it down carefully. 
Obviously, she'd missed him terribly and was desperate to see him again, but she was stingy about spending Golem Trust money. Also, she'd probably run out of cigarettes. Moist drummed his fingers on the desk. A year ago, he'd asked Adorabel Dearheart to be his wife, and she'd explained that, in fact, he was going to be her husband. It was going to be... Well, it was going to be sometime in the near future, when Mrs. Dearheart finally lost patience with her daughter's busy schedule and arranged the wedding herself. But he was a nearly married man, however you looked at it. A nearly married man didn't get mixed up with the lavish family. A nearly married man was steadfast and dependable, and always ready to hand his nearly wife an ashtray. He had to be there for his one-day children, and make sure they slept in a well-ventilated nursery. He smoothed out the message. And he would stop the night climbing, too. Was it grown-up? Was it sensible? Was he a tool of veterinary? No. But a memory stirred. Moist got up and went over to his filing cabinet, which he normally avoided at all costs. Under Stamps, he found the little report he'd had two months ago from Stanley Howler, the head of Stamps. It noted, in passing, the continued high sales of one and two dollar stamps, which was higher than even Stanley had expected. Maybe stamp money was more prevalent than he'd thought. After all, the government backed it, right? It was even easier to carry. He'd have to check on exactly how much they... There was a dainty knock at the door, and Gladys entered. She bore, with extreme care, a plate of ham sandwiches, made very, very thin, as only Gladys could make them, which was to put one ham between two loaves and bring her shovel-sized hand down on it very hard. "'I anticipated that you would have had no lunch, postmaster,' she rumbled. "'Thank you, Gladys,' said Moist, mentally shaking himself. "'And Lord Vetinari is downstairs,' Gladys went on. "'He says there is no rush.' The sandwich stopped an inch from Moist's lips. "'He's in the building.' "'Yes, Mr. Lipvig.' "'Wandering about by himself,' said Moist, horror-mounting. "'Currently he is in the blind letter office, Mr. Lipvig.' "'What's he doing there?' "'Reading the letters, Mr. Lipvig.' "'No rush,' thought Moist grimly. "'Oh, yes. "'Well, I'm going to finish my sandwiches that the nice Lady Golem has made for me. "'Thank you, Gladys,' he said. "'When she was gone,' Moist took a pair of tweezers out of his desk drawer, opened the sandwich, and began to disembowel it of the bone fragments caused by Gladys's drop-hammer technique. It was a little over three minutes later that the golem reappeared and stood patiently in front of the desk. "'Yes, Gladys,' said Moist. "'His lordship desired me to inform you that there is still no rush.' Moist ran downstairs, and Lord Vetinari was indeed sitting in the blind letter office an invention of which Moist was very proud. The people of Ankh-Morpork took a straightforward approach to letter-writing, which could be summarised as, If I know what I mean, so should you. As a result, the post office was used to envelopes addressed to My brother John Tall by the Bridge, or Mrs Smith What Does, Dolly Sisters. The keen and somewhat worrying intellects employed in the blind letter-office enjoyed the challenge, and during their tea-break they played chess in their heads. Lord Vetinari was indeed sitting in the blind letter office with his boots on a desk, a sheaf of letters in his hand, and a smile on his face. Ah, Lipvig, he said, waving the grubby envelopes. Wonderful stuff. Better than a crossword. I like this one. 
Dusbuns Hopsit Farmerks. I've put the correct address underneath. He passed the letter over to Moist. He had written, K. Whistler, Baker, 3 Pigsty Hill. There are uh, three bakeries in the city that could be said to be opposite a pharmacy, said Veterinary, but Whistler does those rather good curly buns that regrettably look as though a dog has just done his business on your plate and somehow managed to add a blob of icing. Well done, sir, said Moist weakly. At the other end of the room, Frank and Dave, who spent all their time deciphering the illegible, misspelled, misdirected, or simply insane mail that sleeted through the blind letter office every day, were watching Veterinari in shock and awe. In the corner, Drumnot appeared to be brewing tea. "'I think it is just a matter of getting into the mind of the writer,' Veterinari went on, looking at a letter covered with grubby fingerprints and what looked like the remains of someone's breakfast. He added, in some cases, I imagine, there is a lot of room. Frank and Dave managed to sort out five out of every six, said Moist. They are vegetable magicians, said Veterinari. He turned to the men, who smiled nervously and backed away, leaving the smiles hanging awkwardly in the air as protection. He added, But I think it is time for their tea break. The two looked at Drumnot, who was pouring tea into two cups. Somewhere else, Veterinari suggested. No express delivery had ever moved faster than Frank and Dave. When the door had shut behind them, Vetinari went on. You have looked around the bank, your conclusions? I think I'd rather stick my thumb in a mincing machine than get involved with the lavish family, said Moist. Oh, I could probably do things with it, and the mint needs a good shaking, but the bank needs to be run by someone who understands banks. People who understand banks got it into the position it's in now said Veterinari, and I did not become ruler of Ankh-Morpork by understanding the city. Like banking, the city is depressingly easy to understand. I have remained ruler by getting the city to understand me. I understood you, sir, when you said something about angels, remember? Well, it worked. I am a reformed character, and I will act like one. Even as far as the goldish chain, said Veterinari, as Drumnot handed him a cup of tea, damn right. Mrs. Lavish was very impressed with you. She said I was an out-and-out -out crook. High praise indeed coming from Topsy, said Veterinari. He sighed. Well, I can't force such a reformed person as you to... Um, he paused as Drumnot leaned down to whisper in his ear, and then continued, Well, clearly I can force you, but on this occasion I don't think I will. Drumnot, take this down, please. I, Moist von Lipwig, wish to make it clear that I have no desire or intention to run or be involved in the running of any bank in Ankh-Morpork, preferring instead to devote my energies to the further improvement of the post office and the Klax system. Leave a space for Mr. Lipwig's signature and the date, and then—look, um, why is this necessary? Moist began. Continue. I, Havelock, Veterinari, etc., Confirm that I have indeed discussed the future of the Ankh-Morpork banking system with Mr. Lipvig, and fully accept his express wish to continue his fine work at the post office, freely and without hindrance or penalty. Space for signature, etc. Thank you, Mr. Lipvig. What is all that about? said Moist, bewildered. The Times seems to think that I intend to nationalise the Royal Bank, said Veterinari.
Nationalize, said Moist. Steal, Betanari translated. I don't know how these rumours get about. I suppose even tyrants have enemies, said Moist. Well put as usual, Mr. Lipvig, said Betanari, giving him a sharp look. Give him the memorandum to sign Drumnot. Drumnot did so, taking care to retrieve the pencil afterward with a rather smug look. Then Vetinari stood up and brushed off his robe. I well recall our interesting conversation about angels, Mr. Lipvig, and I recall telling you that you only get one, he said a little stiffly. Do bear that in mind. It would appear that the leopard does change his shorts, sir, mused Drumnot, as the evening mist drifted waist-high along the street. It would appear so indeed, but Moist von Lipvig is a man of appearances. I'm sure he believes everything he said, but one must look beyond the surface to the Lipvig beneath, an honest soul with a fine criminal mind. You have said something similar before, sir, said the secretary, holding open the coach door, but it seems that honesty has got the better of him. Vetinari paused with his foot on the step. Indeed. But I take some heart, Drumnod, from the fact that, once again, he has stolen your pencil. In fact, he has not, sir, because I was most careful to put it in my pocket, said Drumnod, in some triumph. Yes, said Vetinari happily, sinking into the creaking leather as Drumnod started to pat himself down with increasing desperation. I know. There were guards in the bank at night. They patrolled the corridors in a leisurely way, whistling under their breath, safe in the knowledge that the very best locks kept miscreants out, and all the ground floor was paved with marble which, in the long, silent watches of the night, rang like a bell at every step. Some dozed, standing upright, with their eyes half open. But someone ignored the locks of iron, passed through the bars of brass, trod soundlessly on the ringing tiles, moved under the very noses of the slumbering men. Nevertheless, when the figure walked through the big doors to the chairman's office, two crossbow bolts passed through it and splintered the fine woodwork. "'Well, you can't blame a body for trying,' said Mrs. Lavish. "'I am not concerned with your body, Mrs. Topsy Lavish,' said Death. "'It's been quite a while since anyone was,' sighed Topsy. "'This is the reckoning, Mrs. Lavish, the final accounting.' "'Do you—' "'Always use banking allusions at a time like this,' said Topsy, standing up. Something remained slumped in the chair, but it wasn't Mrs. Lavish any more. "'I try to acknowledge the ambiance, Mrs. Lavish.' "'The closing of the ledger would have had the right ring, too.' "'Thank you. I shall make a note. And now you must come with me.' "'I made my will just in time, it seems,' said Topsy, letting her white hair down. "'One should always take care of one's—' Posterity, Mrs. Lavish. My posterity? The Lavishes can kiss my bum, sir. I've fixed them for good, oh yes. Now what, Mr. Death? Now, said Death, now, you could say, comes the audit. Oh, there is one, is there? Well, I'm not ashamed. That counts. Good. It should, said Topsy. She took Death's arm and walked with him through the doors and on to the black desert under the endless night. After a while, Mr. Fusspot sat up and started to whine. There was a small article about the banking business in the Times next morning. It used the word crisis quite a lot. 
Ah, here we are, thought Moist, when he got to paragraph four. Or rather, here I am. Lord Vetinari told the Times, It is true that, with the permission of the bank's chairman, I discussed with the postmaster-general the possibility of him offering his services to the Royal Bank in these difficult times. He has declined, and the matter ends there. It is not the business of the government to run banks. The future of the Royal Bank of Ankh-Morpork is in the hands of its directors and shareholders. And God's help it, thought Moist. He tackled the in-tray with vigour. He threw himself at the paperwork, checking figures, correcting spelling, and humming to himself to drown out the inner voice of temptation. Lunchtime arrived, and with it a plate of one-foot-wide cheese sandwiches delivered by Gladys, along with the midday copy of the Times. Mrs. Lavish had died in the night. Moist stared at the news. It said she had passed away quietly in her sleep after a long illness. He dropped the paper and stared at the wall. She'd seemed like someone hanging together by sheer grit and gin. Even so, that vitality, that spark. Well, she couldn't hold on forever. So what would happen now? He got he was well out of it. And it was probably not a good day to be Mr. Fusspot. He'd looked a waddly sort of dog, so he'd better learn to run really quickly. The latest post that Gladys had brought up contained a long and thoroughly second-hand envelope addressed to him personally in thick black letters. He slit it open with the paper knife and shook it out onto the waste bin just in case. There was a folded newspaper inside. It was, it turned out, the Times from yesterday, and there was Moist von Lipvig on the front page, circled. Moist turned it over. On the other side, in tiny, neat handwriting, were the words, Dear Sir, I have took the small precaution of loging certain affidavids with trusted associates. You will hear from me again, our friend. Take it slowly. Take it slowly. It can't be from a friend. Everyone I think of as a friend can spell. This must be some kind of con, yes? But there were no skeletons in his closet. Oh, all right. If you were going for the fine detail, there were, in fact, enough skeletons in his closet to fill a big crypt, with enough left over to equip a funfair house of horrors, and maybe also to make a macabre but mildly amusing ashtray. But they'd never been associated with the name Lipvig. He'd been careful about that. His crimes had died with Albert Spangler. A good hangman knows exactly how much rope to give a man, and had dropped him out of one life and into another. Could anyone have recognised him? But he was the least recognisable person in the world when he wasn't wearing his golden suit. When he was young, his mother sometimes went home from school with the wrong child. And when he wore the suit, people recognised the suit. He hid by being conspicuous. It had to be a scam of some kind. Yes, that was it. The old guilty secret job. Probably no one got to a position like this without accumulating some things they'd rather not see made public. But it was a nice touch to include the bit about affidavits. It was there to set a nervous man to wondering. It suggested that the sender knew something so dangerous that you, the recipient, might try to silence him, and he was in a position to set the lawyers on you. <laughs> and he was being given some time in which, presumably, to stew. Him. Moist von Lipvig. Well, they might just find out how hot a stew could get. For now, he shoved the paper in a bottom drawer.
There was a knock at the door. Come in, Gladys, he said, rummaging in the in-tray again. The door opened, and the worried, pale face of Stanley Howler appeared around it. Uh, it it's me, sir, uh, Stanley, sir, it said. Yes, Stanley. Head of stamps at the post office, sir, Stanley added, in case pinpoint identification was required. Yes, Stanley, I know, said Moist patiently. I see you every day. What is it that you want? Nothing, sir, said Stanley. There was a pause, and Moist adjusted his mind to the world as seen through the brain of Stanley Howler. Stanley was very precise and as patient as the grave. What is the reason for you coming here to see me today, Stanley? Moist tried, enunciating carefully in order to deliver the sentence in bite-sized chunks. There is a lawyer downstairs, sir, Stanley announced. But I've only just read the threatening... Moist began and then relaxed. A lawyer? Did he say why? He said. A matter of great importance, he said. There's two watchmen with him, sir, and a dog. Really? said Moist calmly. Well, you'd better show them up, then. He glanced at his watch. Okay, not good. The Lanker flyer would be leaving in forty-five seconds. He knew he could be down that damn drainpipe in eleven seconds. Stanley was on his way below to bring them up here, call that thirty seconds, maybe. Get them off the ground floor, that was the thing. Scramble onto the back of the coach, jump off when it slowed down for the Hubwood's gate, pick open the tin chest he'd got stashed in the beams of the old stable in Lobbin Clout, get changed and adjust his face, stroll across the city to have a coffee in that shop near the main watch house, keep an eye on the clax traffic for a while, stroll over to Hen and Chicken's court where he had another trunk stored with I don't know Jack, get changed, leave with his little bag and his tweed cap, which he'd changed for the old brown bowler in the bag in some alley, just in case Jack had a sudden attack of memory brought on by excessive money, and he'd mosey down to the slaughterhouse district and step into the persona of Jeff the Drover and hang out in the huge, fetid bar of the Butcher's Eagle, which was where the drovers traditionally damped down the road dust. There was a vampire in the watch these days, and they'd had a werewolf for years too. Well, let those famously sharp noses snuff up the mixed cocktail stink of manure, fear, sweat, offal and urine and see how they liked it. And that was just in the bar. If anything, it was worse than the slaughterhouses. Then maybe he'd wait until evening to hitch a lift on one of the steaming dung carts heading out of the city, along with the other drunk drovers. The gate guards never bothered to check them. On the other hand, if his sixth sense was still squawking, then he'd run the thimble game with some drunk, until he'd got enough for a little bottle of perfume and a cheap but decent third-hand suit at some shonky shop, and repair to Mrs. Eucrasia Arcanum's lodging house for respectable working men, where, with a tip of the hat and some wire-rimmed spectacles, he'd be Mr. Trespass Hatchcock, a wool salesman who stayed there every time his business brought him to the city, and who always brought her a little gift suitable for a widow of the age she'd like people to think she was. Yes, that'd be a better idea. At Mrs. Arcanum's the food was solid and plentiful, the beds were good, and you seldom had to share. Then he could make real plans. The itinerary of evasion wound across his inner eye at the speed of flight. The outer eye alighted on something less pleasing. There was a copper in the coachyard, chatting to a couple of the drivers. Moist recognised Sergeant Fred Colon, whose chief duty appeared to be ambling around the city, chattering to elderly men of the same age and demeanour as himself. 
the watchman spotted Moist at the window and gave him a little wave. No, it was going to get complicated and messy if he ran. He'd have to bluff it out up here. It wasn't as though he'd done anything wrong, technically. The letter had thrown him, that's all it was. Moist was sitting at his desk looking busy when Stanley came back, ushering in Mr. Slant, the city's best known, and at 351 probably also its oldest lawyer. He was accompanied by Sergeant Angua and Corporal Nobbs, widely rumoured to be the watch's secret werewolf. Corporal Nobbs was accompanied by a large wicker hamper and Sergeant Angua, carrying a large bag and a squeaky rubber bone, which she occasionally, in an absent-minded way, squeaked. Things were looking up, but strange. The exchanged pleasantries were not that pleasant, this close to Nobby Nobbs and the lawyer, who smelled of embalming fluid, but when they were over, Mr. Slant said, "'I believe you visited Mrs. Topsy Lavish yesterday, Mr. Lifvig.' "'Oh, yes, uh, when she was alive,' said Moist, and cursed himself, and the unknown letter-writer. He was losing it, he really was. Uh, "'This is not a murder investigation, sir,' said the sergeant calmly. "'Are you sure? In the circumstances, we've made it our business to be sure, sir,' said the sergeant. "'In the circumstances? Don't think it was the family, then?' "'No, sir.' "'Or you?' "'Me?' said Moist, suitably open-mouthed at the suggestion. Uh, "'Mrs. Lavish was known to be very ill,' said Mr. Slant. "'And it seems that she took quite a shine to you, Mr. Lipvig. "'She has left you her little dog, Mr. Fusspot.' "'And also a bag of toys, rugs, tartan coats, little booties, eight collars including one set with diamonds, "'and, oh, a vast amount of other stuff,' said Sergeant Angua. "'She squeaked the rubber bone again. "'Moist's mouth shut. "'The dog,' he said in a hollow voice. Just the dog and the toys. You were expecting something more, said Angua. I wasn't expecting even that. Moist looked at the hamper. It was suspiciously silent. I'll give him one of his little blue pills, said Nobby Nobbs helpfully. They knocks him out for a little while. Don't work on people, though. They taste of aniseed. All this is a bit odd, isn't it? said Moist. Why is the watch here? The diamond collar? Anyway, I thought the will wasn't read until after the funeral. Mr. Slant coughed. A moth flew out of his mouth. Yes, indeed, but knowing the contents of her will, I thought it prudent to hasten to the Royal Bank and deal with the most... There was a very long pause. For a zombie, the whole of life is a pause, but it seemed that he was looking for the right word. Problematical bequests immediately, he finished. Yes, well, I suppose the little doggy needs feeding, said Moist, but I wouldn't have thought that the uh, problem, if such it be, is, in fact, his paperwork, said Mr. Slant, pulling a slim brown wallet from his briefcase. Wrong pedigree, said Moist. Not his uh, pedigree, said Mr. Slant. You may be aware that the late Sir Joshua left one per cent share in the bank to Mr. Fusspot. A cold, black wind began to blow through Moist's mind. Yes, 
he said. I am. The late Mrs. Lavish has left him another fifty per cent. That, by the customs of the bank, means that he is the new chairman, Mr. Liffig, and you own him. Hold on, an animal can't own. Oh, but it can, Mr. Liffig, it can, said Slant with loyally glee. There is a huge body of case law. There was even once a donkey who was ordained and a tortoise who was appointed a judge. Obviously, the more difficult trades are less well represented. No horse has yet held down a job as a carpenter, for example, but dog as chairman is relatively usual. This makes no sense. She hardly knows me. And his mind chimed in with, Oh, yes, she does. She had you banged her rights in a blink. Thou will was dictated to me last night, Mr. Lipwig, in the presence of two witnesses and Mrs. Lavish's physician, who declared her very sound of mind, if not of body. Mr. Slant stood up. The will, in short, is legal. It does not have to make sense. But how can he... Well, chair meetings. All he does with chairs is sniff the legs. I assume he will act as chairman through you, said the lawyer. There was a squeak from Sergeant Angua. And what happens if he dies, said Moist. Ah, thank you for reminding me, said Mr. Slant, taking another document from the thin and rather battered briefcase. Yes, it says here the shares will be distributed among any remaining members of the family. Any remaining members of the family? What, his family? I don't think he's had much of a chance to have one. No, Mr. Lipvig, said Slant. The lavish family. Moist felt the winds grow colder. How long does a dog live? An ordinary dog, said Nobby Nobbs, or a dog who stands between a bunch of lavishes and another fortune. Corporal Nobbs, that was a pertinent remark, snapped Sergeant Angua. Sorry, Sarge. <clears throat> a cough from Mr. Slant liberated another moth. Mr. Fusspot is used to sleeping in the manager's suite at the bank, Mr. Lipvig, he said. You will sleep there too. It is a condition of the bequest. Moist stood up. I don't have to do any of this, he snapped. It's not like I've committed a crime. You can't run people's lives from beyond the grave. Well, you can, sir, no problem there, but she can't just... A further envelope was produced in the briefcase. Mr. Slant was smiling, which is never a good sign. Mrs. Lavish also wrote this personal heartfelt plea to you, he said. And now, Sergeant, I think we should leave Mr. Lipvig alone. They departed, although after a few seconds, Sergeant Angua walked back in and without saying a word or catching his eye, went over to the bag of toys and dropped the squeaky rubber bone. Moist walked over to the basket and lifted the lid. Mr. Fusspot looked up, yawned, and then reared up on his cushion and begged. His tail wagged uncertainly once or twice, and his huge eyes filled with hope. Don't look at me, kid, said Moist, and turned his back. Mrs. Lavish's letter was drenched in lavender water, slightly spiced with gin. She wrote, in a very neat old lady hand, Dear Mr. Lipvig, 
I feel that you are a dear sweet man who will look after my little Mr. Fusspot. Please be kind to him. He has been my only friend in difficult times. Money is such a crude thing in these circumstances, but the sum of twenty thousand dollars annually will be paid to you in arrears for performing this duty which I beg you to accept. If you do not, or if he dies of unnatural causes, your ass will belong to the Guild of Assassins. One hundred thousand dollars is lodged with Lord Downey, and his young gentleman will hunt you down and gut you like the weasel you are, smart boy. May the gods bless you for your kindness to a widow in distress. Moist was impressed. Stick and carrot. Veterinary just used the stick, or hit you over the head with a carrot. Veterinary. Now there was a man with some questions to answer. The hairs on the back of his neck, trained by decades of dodging in any case, and suddenly made extra sensitive with Mrs. Lavish's words still bouncing in his skull, bristled in terror. Something came through the window and thunked into the wall, but Moist was already diving for the carpet when the glass broke. Shuddering in the door was a black arrow. Moist crawled across the carpet, reached up, grabbed the arrow, and ducked down again. In exquisite white writing, like the inscription on some ancient ring, on the arrow were the words, Guild of Assassins, when style matters. It had to be a warning shot, right? Just a little grace note, yes? A sort of emphasis. Just in case. Mr. Fusspot took this opportunity to leap out of his basket and lick Moist's face. Mr. Fusspot didn't care who he was or what he'd done, he just wanted to be friends. I think, said Moist, giving in, that you and me ought to go walkies. The dog gave an excited little yip and went and tugged at the bag of accessories until it fell over. He disappeared inside, tail wagging madly, and came out dragging a little red velvet doggy coat on which the word Tuesday was embroidered. Lucky guess, boy, said Moist as he buckled it up. This was difficult, because he was being washed by dog goo all the while. Um, you wouldn't know where your lead is, would you? Moist ventured, trying not to swallow. Mr. Fusspot bounced off to the bag and returned again with a red leash. OK, said Moist. This is going to be the fastest walkie in the history of walkies. It is, in fact, going to be a runny. As he reached up for the door handle, the door opened anyway. Moist found himself staring up at two terracotta-coloured legs that were as thick as tree trunks. "'I hope you are not looking up my dress, Mr. Lipvig,' rumbled far above. "'At what, exactly?' Moist thought. "'Ah, Gladys,' he said. "'Would you just go and stand at the window? Thank you.' There was a little tick sound, and Gladys turned around, holding another black arrow between her thumb and forefinger. Its sudden deceleration in Gladys's grasp had caused it to catch fire. "'Someone has sent you an arrow, Mr. Lipvig,' she noted. "'Really?' "'Just blow it out and put it in the in-tray, will you?' said Moist, crawling out of the door. "'I'm just going to see a man about a dog.' He picked up Mr. Fusspot and hurried down the stairs, through the thronged hall, down the stone steps, and there, pulling up to the curb, was a black coach. Ha! The man was always one jump ahead, right? He wrenched open the door as the coach came to a stop, landed heavily in an unoccupied seat, with Mr. Fusspot barking happily in his arm, glared across the carpet and said, "'Oh, sorry, I thought this was Lord Veterinari's coach.' A hand slammed the door shut. It was wearing a large, black, and very expensive glove, with jet beads embroidered into it. Moist's gaze followed it up an arm to a face which said, "'No, Mr. Lipfig, my name is Cosmo Lavish.' 
I was just coming to see you. How do you do?'